What book are we in this morning? Acts. We're in the book of Acts. Yeah. Acts is a continuation of the gospel of Luke. They were written about the same time period. Acts was written shortly after the gospel. It was a continuation of what Luke was writing in the gospel of Luke. And they were written about 58, 59, 60, somewhere in that, before Paul's imprisonment in 62 AD. So we know it was before 62 and probably after 58. So somewhere in that time period, we can't be precise in pinpointing the actual date. But that's when it was written. Luke is the only Gentile writer of the Bible, right? All of the other writers of the Bible were Jewish, except for Luke. Luke is a continuation, and as I said, it's a transition book between the Gospels and the Epistles of Paul. Without the book of Acts, we would be hard-pressed to really understand what was happening in the Epistles. The Gospels give us the understanding, the history of everything that Jesus taught and did while he was here on earth. Acts gives us a record of everything Jesus did and taught when? When he was at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. He's not here anymore, he's there. But he's still working, isn't he? The Acts of the Apostles is really the work of the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaGodesh, the New Hagasumi, in the believers today. Isn't that true? And so the Acts of the Apostles are still continuing through your life and through mine. The apostolic... uh, Mission is still ours today. Apostolos, the word means those who are sent forth to share the teachings of their master or their teacher. And that's what we're called to do. Now, in the strictest sense of the definition of the word, there are no apostles today, are there? Irrespective of what some may claim, and some even have a card-carrying apostleship. (laughs) Nonsense, right? You can't possibly fulfill the requirements of apostleship today. So that can't possibly be true. But every one of us are sent forth to share the gospel. And the last thing that Jesus said to his apostles and his disciples before he left was, to go ye therefore into all the world, right? And make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So the book of Acts is the apostles doing exactly what Jesus had called them to do. You understand that, right? All right, so as we get into the book, we're going to see that not only is it an apologetic of Christianity, but it seems to be also written as a defense for Paul when he's going to go before Caesar. And who is it written to? Theophilus, name you ever heard. No, 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 no. Oh, Theophilus. And what does it mean? Lover of God, lover of God. Now, both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts is written to Theophilus. And it says, oh, most excellent Theophilus. Now, that would be a term used to address a Roman official. So we believe that Theophilus was a Roman official, and his true name wasn't Theophilus. It was something else, but obviously he was a lover of God, and he couldn't expose his faith in Christ at this time. The persecution would have been too great, much like I believe that Benjamin Netanyahu is a Messianic Jew. I believe that Benjamin Netanyahu believes in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, but he can't say that right now openly and publicly because it would be political suicide, wouldn't it? Yeah, but there is some reason to believe that that's true. Well, so too with this man Ophiophilus. So he's only, he's writing to Theophilus to give him a defense of the gospel, a defense of the Paul, Jesus Christ. And it's also a history of what had taken place, particularly in two people's lives. Who are the two people? Peter, an apostle to the Jews, the circumcision. And then Paul, an apostle to the uncircumcised, the Gentiles. And then we have a little bit of a slice in there about Philip's life. So it's really the three of them. But as we were in it last week, or no, 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 that was two weeks ago, I parked on this aspect of the kingdom of God, and I want to finish that this morning, our discussion on the kingdom of God. So if you turn with me, let's begin. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Can I pray one more time? You'll allow me, won't you? Father, there is, there's no doubt in my mind, Father, that the darkness is closing in. But we praise you and thank you, Lord, that you told us ahead of time all of this was going to take place. And we ask, Lord, that you just begin to prepare our lives and prepare our hearts, Lord, for all that you have prepared for us in this world, in this climax, in the conclusion of this age of the Gentiles, Lord. And we see it's approaching much sooner than I think most people realize. But Lord, give us ears to hear. 
eyes to see, a heart to believe, a mind to understand, Lord. Help us, Lord. That we, like, like so many in the early church, in this record of the book of Acts, who were so dedicated, so devoted, experiencing the best of times, the worst of times, experiencing such sorrow and grief and experiencing such joy and jubilation, but all dedicated to you in that one mission of sharing the gospel, sharing your life, Jesus, with everyone who would listen, everyone who would hear. And Lord, please, Lord, move in our hearts, Lord, that we would show our love for you in our dedication, Lord. These men and these women that we will read about were so dedicated, so surrendered, so yielded to you in every area of their life. And may it be so with us, Lord. May the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the, 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 the pleasures, the, all of the temptations that exist, may we be immune to them all, Lord. Have no effect whatsoever on our lives, Lord. And may we realize, as the curtain is closing on this age, Lord, our responsibility, like them, is to go, therefore, and make disciples sharing the truth, Lord, sharing your word, the words of life. Help us, Lord Jesus. May everyone in my hearing this morning, in this sanctuary and over the internet, Lord, may every one of us receive what you have for us. Holy Spirit, be our teacher and our guide now. Teach us things that, that we know not, Lord. Refresh us in what we do know. And move us, motivate us, Lord, to be more passionate in fulfilling that great commission than ever before. In Jesus' holy name. And everyone who agreed with me said, Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 1, verse 1, the former account. I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, and that commandment was to go ye therefore and share the gospel, make disciples, and so this record of the book of Acts is them fulfilling that command. To whom he also presented himself alive after suffering many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So he was seen among them and there's indisputable evidence. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 for just a moment. I'll share some of that evidence for you. 1 Corinthians 15 is called what? The resurrection chapter. That's right. So turn with me there. 1 Corinthians 15. And we're just going to look at the first few verses. What a beautiful sound it is, you turning your Bibles, your pages of your Bible. It's a beautiful sound. Good that you have your Bible and not just the Bible in your phone or on your iPad because the power goes out and you can't access that technology any longer. At least you have the written word. Amen? Yeah. And faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. That's right, that's right. Chapter 15, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you were saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to... Scriptures. It's important that you know the word of God and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, the word of God, and that he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have passed away, some have fallen asleep. Can you imagine that? 500 eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We said there were how many post-resurrection appearances of Christ recorded for us in the scriptures? No less than 10. No less than 10 post-resurrection appearances of Christ. And there were over 500 at this time. Imagine that. 
Verse 7, after that he was seen by James and by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. Wow. So that's the evidences that we see that Paul recorded for us later after the book of Acts, indisputable evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Reading one theologian, he said there's more evidence for the resurrection of Christ than there is for the existence of George Washington. Can you imagine? Hmm. Back to Acts chapter 1. Infallible proofs, indisputable evidence, being seen by them 40 days. And Luke gives us that 40-day account that had taken place where he was on earth after his resurrection for 40 days. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. Why was that a concern that they should remain in Jerusalem? Persecution. Can you imagine? That had to be very, very uncomfortable for them. I'm sure every one of them wanted to go back to the Galilee, back home where it was safe, reasonably safe, and, and there was no persecution that had taken place. But Jerusalem, Jerusalem is the very place where the Christ was tried, beaten, crucified, and died. And then actually, naturally, they would hunt down his believers, the disciples, those who would follow him. So it was a very frightening thing for them to remain in Jerusalem and to wait. How often God wants us out of our comfort zone, doesn't he? Yeah. Now, we would not experience persecution or even the threat of death right now. No, 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 for our faith in Christ. But when you're out and about, when you're in the workplace, when you're at school, when you're gathered together with your family or friends, are you bold enough to share the truth? Or are you timid and afraid? feeling a little uncomfortable, a little out of place. Maybe you don't belong. But then ask and pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to give you a boldness. Because right now, beloved, our society, our culture, and so many of those that we know, maybe love, we work with, go to school with, are hostile to what we believe, but they need to know the truth. They shared it to a very hostile world, didn't they? Didn't they? And, and so we get the privilege of sharing that same truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to a very hostile audience. But some will be saved. That's the joy of it all, isn't it? Yes, of course. But wait until the promise of my Father, which he had said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And we'll go into that more extensively when we get into chapter 2 when Pentecost had fully come. But continuing on in verse 6, it says, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, they were talking about some of the prophecies that existed in the Old Testament in Joel. It was prophesied. Turn with me there, Joel chapter 2. And when you're in Joel chapter 2, but put your marker or your finger there and then go to Zechariah chapter 12. Just a couple of the prophecies. There's so many we could go to. We could go to Isaiah. We could go to Zephaniah. We could go to Amos. So many prophecies concerning the fact that the Messiah would come and establish his millennial kingdom. And that's the kingdom that they were talking about, that messianic millennial kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament. But here I'll just give you a couple of scriptures to look at. Joel chapter 2. Is everybody there? And then you're going to put your finger in Zechariah chapter 12. Okay? So important that you have a good working knowledge of the scriptures for yourself. So important that you know the word of God. So many today who claim to know him, yet such ignorance with regard to his word. You know the mark of a true believer, somebody's really been born again, born anew, transfigured, transformed, changed, Regenerated, you know, the real mark of that person is their hunger and their thirst for the Word of God. Right? Why? Because the Holy Spirit dwells within a true believer. No Holy Spirit, no salvation. And when the Holy Spirit dwells within a true believer, where does he draw you to? The book he wrote. <laughs> Wednesday night I gave out a book, didn't I? Who wrote that book? 
My son, Dr. Richard Varialli, he wrote a book called Reformation Responsibility. Ran out of copies. I'll have more for you next week. But, but nonetheless, if Richard were here, he'd be happy to have you read his book. He'd even autograph it for you. And he might even help you understand those portions of the text that you might not be able to, although it's a simple read. Well, the Holy Spirit does the same, you know. This is his book. He authored this. And so well, listen to me now. Listen closely. When the Holy Spirit comes into the life of an individual, I don't care who you are, the first place he drives you to is the Word of God. You have a hunger and a thirst, an insatiable appetite for the truth of God's Word. That's a mark of salvation. You understand me? If a person has no hunger for the Word of God, no interest in it, boring, there's no reason to believe salvation occurred. Do you understand me? But when a person can't put down the word of God, when a person devours it's the bread of life, it's the very air they breathe. Is that not true? Beloved? Amen. Give me an Somebody give me an amen. amen. Yeah, it's true. And so when there's no appetite for the word, no discussion on the word, no hunger for the word, you have to wonder why well, salvation never really occurred. Because the Holy Spirit's the author. The Holy Spirit's the teacher. The Holy Spirit's the interpreter. And so he'll help you understand the text. But the Holy Spirit wrote in Joel chapter 2, beginning at verse 28, about the events that would take place before the day of the Lord. Yeah, some of the girls were saying they want to try to get to church on time. They never seem to get to church on time. It's okay. You're like my wife, Gail. You and Jesus have something in common. And what is that? You know they're coming, you just don't know when. You know, you're just... <laughs> It can never be certain as to when it'll happen. But verse 28 of chapter 2, And it shall come to pass after that pour of my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Your young men shall see visions, and also unmade men servants and unmade servants. I will pour my, out my spirit in those days. I will show signs and wonders in the heavens and in earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the coming of that great and terrible day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And, and for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance. As the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls, for behold, in those days and at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of judgment, of decision. And I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage, whom they have scattered among the nations. Zechariah chapter 12, beginning in verse... Eight. In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And it shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations who come up against Jerusalem. That's happening very soon, beloved. We see it forming right now. Verse 10, I will pour out upon the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Salvation will occur, for Israel will be awakened and who Jesus really is, their Messiah. And then they will look upon me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn as one who mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one who grieves for his firstborn. And in that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning at Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo when Josiah died. And the land shall mourn every family by itself, family of the house of David by itself, family of their wives and by themselves, the house of the family of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves. All of Israel will mourn what has taken place in their crucifixion, in their bringing about the execution of their own Messiah. But they'll see Jesus for who he really is. Now, they're asking the question in Acts, when will the kingdom come? When will the kingdom appear? Verse 6, Acts 1, they said, therefore, when they came to him together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Now, last time we were together, I told you, I want you to understand very thoroughly, because it's important that you understand the kingdom program of God. We said that there are two words that are used that are synonymous, two phrases, excuse me. One is the kingdom of God, the other is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is used by Matthew over 30 times in Matthew's gospel. In the rest of the synoptic gospels, right, uh, Mark, Luke, 
in particular. They don't reference it as the kingdom of heaven. They call it the kingdom of God, because Matthew was writing specifically to the Jew, and because he understood the Jewish sensibilities, sensitivity there, to their, they believed they would never, ever, ever try to even pronounce the name of God. When they refer to God, how do they refer to him? Hashem, the name, simply the name. You, you know, you know who I'm talking about? Hashem, you know the name, right? But they are synonymous because in the synoptics you'll see, Matthew, Mark, Luke, these passages are parallel. They, they're talking about the same event, same period of time. So, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, same phrase, synonymous. But when we talk about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, what are we really talking about? Are we talking about an eternal spiritual kingdom? Or are we talking about a temporal material kingdom? Which? Yes, yes both. Right? <laughs> we, said, we said that, I, I quoted Dwight Pentecost the last time we were together, and I said, well, understanding the kingdom of God aspect, you need to understand the right to rule, the realm of rule, and the reality of rule. And that's all what God has done. We see that both in the Old Testament, both in the New. We said there are some seeming, seeming, seeming contradictions. You know, when people bring up the contradictions that are in the Bible, it's just a seeming contradiction. You just didn't, haven't dug far enough into the word of God or into the original text to see there's no contradiction at all, is there? But here when we understand the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God program, we see that there, there's a distinction of time. When? Is it present or is it future? It's both. It's both. The other distinction is the scope, the where. Is it universal or is it just earthly? Yes, yes it's both. <laughs> All right, the distinction of administration. Is it God or a human representative that leads this kingdom? And, that, and that's, that's why there's so much confusion today when you talk to a lot of people in the church today about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. They don't seem to understand the different aspects to the kingdom or the kingdom program that God has established. And we talked about that last time. We said that the eternal universal kingdom is where God reigns everywhere and at all time. And it goes on even now, doesn't it? Is there any place that exists where God doesn't reign? Is God sovereign over all? Yes, of course he is. And we talked about that. We said the second aspect of the kingdom was what? The spiritual kingdom. And what is the, who is, comprises the spiritual kingdom? Everyone who is regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament saints, church saints. We don't like talk about those, do we? No, that's a scary thought. Tribulation saints? Yes, yes. Tribulation. There's Old Testament saints. There's church saints, New Testament saints. There's tribulation saints. You understand that? And all of the saints who are possessed of the Holy Spirit of God make up the spiritual kingdom. All right? That's the spiritual. So we have the universal kingdom, the spiritual kingdom. What was the third aspect of the kingdom? What we talked about the universal kingdom, the spiritual kingdom. They're not of this world, are they? No, no, no. But God reigns everywhere at all time. The spiritual kingdom is in the spiritual aspect where God really dwells in heaven. What was the third aspect of the kingdom program that we read from the scriptures? The theocratic kingdom. Now, the theocratic, theocratic kingdom was... God reigning through his mediatorial representatives. Uh, who was the first representative in that theocratic kingdom? Moses. Moses was. They weren't a people. They weren't a nation. How many people went into Egypt? Seventy. Seventy people. If you're reading through the Bible this year, you probably covered that already, right? And you're reading through Genesis. Seventy people, the sons and the family of Jacob, went into Egypt. After 400 years, how many came out? Millions, probably somewhere around three million people. They were a nation now, the nation of Israel, right? And that's when the national Israel begins. That's when the theocratic kingdom began. It was earthly. It was temporal, right? But it was through the mediatorial representatives that God established, first one being Moses. Who was after Moses? Yahshua, Yahshua, right? Yeah, but it went from the representatives individually to a monarchy, right? Um, the monarchy was established first by whom? Saul. 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 The representative form of government in that theocratic kingdom ended with, who's the last judge, priest, prophet? Samuel. Samuel. Samuel was the last one to be in that mediatorial role, but then he anointed who? 
Saul. Now we begin the monarchy of Israel, and Saul was the first king. Still, still the theocratic kingdom, though, and it's very temporary. It has a limited time period in which it would exist. So Saul was the first king, and then we had David, the beloved, right? David. David is going to reign again, you know, in Jerusalem with Christ. You understand that? Yeah, David's coming back. We're going to have an opportunity to get to know him. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Hmm? But who was the last king during this theocratic kingdom? Who? Zedekiah. Zedekiah. That's right. Zedekiah was the last king of Judah, last king reigning in Jerusalem on the throne of David, and that ended the theocratic kingdom. Remember that? Okay. And we said, now what was ushered in at that point? The times of the Gentiles. That was prophesied by Daniel in Daniel chapter 2 when he interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's vision. You remember that? Hmm? And in his vision, he saw all of those Gentile world-governing empires that would exist, that would control the land of Israel or the area of Palestine, as we can see it today. And it was first the Babylonian kingdom. That's when Judah and Jerusalem was destroyed. Zedekiah, the last king, was carried into captivity, and the theocratic kingdom ended. The time of the Gentiles began with the Babylonian kingdom, the sec second Gentile empire to rise up, the Medes and the Persians. And they controlled that area. All prophesied in the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter 2, in the vision that Daniel had in chapter 7 of these beasts. The third kingdom? The Grecian kingdom, right? The fourth? Roman Empire. The fifth? The revived Roman Empire. And we, we see all of this described for us in the scriptures. If you go uh, to Daniel chapter 9, you know, I'm not asking you to turn there now. Maybe you can do that in your leisure this afternoon. Daniel, if you understand Daniel chapter 9, you have no problem with Bible prophecy anywhere else. Because Daniel chapter 9 gives us the time frame of world history as God determines it. Right? And all of world history, you have to understand from a biblical perspective, biblical worldview, begins and ends with who? Israel. That's right, Israel. That's right. So all of God's timetable with regard to actively interfering in the affairs of man in this life all works with or, or is conditional upon how God is working with the nation of Israel. And Daniel chapter 9 tells us there were 69 seven-year periods that God would be working with the nation of Israel until the coming of the Messiah, the Prince. Who is that? Jesus. Jesus. And we know precisely that Daniel predicted right to the very day when Jesus would make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But then he would be cut off. He would be rejected. The national rejection of the Messiah by Israel. Amazing, isn't it? Oh, my. Oy vey, you would say, right? But why did God allow that? So that we could be saved, right? The Gentiles could be saved, right? God predetermined, Romans 9, 10, 11 tells us God predetermined the rejection of the Messiah by Israel so that the Gentiles could be saved. And he's saving the Gentiles so he could bring the Jews to jealousy, restore them back to himself. Isn't that amazing how God works, right? But nonetheless, after that period of time, that last seven or heptad, seven-year period, where God was dealing directly with the nation of Israel. The Messiah was cut off, and then, and that's chapter 9, verse 26, but there's a gap in time before God begins to work directly with Israel again and fulfill Joel chapter 2, Zechariah chapter 12, Amos chapter 5, etc., etc., etc. So many prophecies concerning God's direct intervention once again with the nation of Israel and bringing about their understanding of Jesus as the Messiah, right? But before that would take place, between chapter, between verse 26 and 27 in, in Daniel chapter 9 is how many years? About 2,000. And what do we call that period? The church age. The church age. So we understand the times of the Gentiles began when the Babylonian captivity of Israel occurred in 586 B.C. when the temple was destroyed and the nation was no longer, right? Zedekiah was carried into captivity. But, but the beginning of the period of the church age began at Pentecost. We'll get into that when we get into chapter 2, okay? When the church was birthed. But even the church has a limited period of time of its existence as we understand it here today on this earth. And when will the church age end? With the rapture of the church. And the church age will be over and God will be working once again with the nation of Israel. Remember, his his time frame and the way in which he's working in world history all has to do with the way he's working with the nation of Israel. And so when the church is raptured, what begins for Israel? This, 
the 70th seven of Daniel, the last seven-year period of human history as we understand it and we know it today. This is also important that you understand all of this because it's all happening now. Wonderful. Universal kingdom, it exists today. Spiritual kingdom, it exists. We're part of that, aren't we? Praise God. Theocratic kingdom, no more. Times of the Gentiles, now. Church age, now. But the kingdom that they were questioning him about would be the messianic millennial kingdom. Now, when does that begin? At the end of the tribulation period, when Christ returns. Now, now we talked about, before we get to the messianic millennial kingdom, there was another kingdom that was n- they had no understanding of in the Old Testament. It wasn't prophesied. Universal kingdom, we could, we could gather information and, and present an apologetic or a defense for the universal kingdom in the Old Testament. We could present an apologetic or a defense for the spiritual kingdom in the Old Testament. Certainly we can present apologetic for the theocratic kingdom. The first two were implicit, but the last one is explicit, isn't it, in the Old Testament. But as far as the fourth kingdom or aspect of the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven program of God was what? Which what kingdom? The mystery kingdom. Mystery. Where do we get that phrase from? Turn with me to Matthew's gospel. 13, Matthew 13. And we went into some detail about all of these parables because these parables were describing for us the mystery kingdom. And I'm looking for explicitly where he says you need to understand the mysteries of the kingdom. Where am I? Yeah. Verse 11 of chapter 13, or verse 10, the disciples came to him and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and he said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it was not given. They wouldn't understand because he was speaking to them in parables and the parabolic literature was very difficult to understand. We can understand and interpret it today. But every single synoptic gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, all share this or quote this verse from Jesus where he's saying, and it has been given to you to understand the mysteries of the kingdom. And so that's where we get the phrase, the mystery kingdom. The mystery kingdom of the mysterion of God is something he wants to reveal to his church, to the body of Christ. It's been concealed to the unbeliever, okay? And so we went through all of those parables with regard to the mystery kingdom that God would bring about through the person of his Holy Spirit, through the work of Jesus Christ, a body that was comprised of both Jew and Gentile which was unheard of in the Old Testament. You know, a, a Gentile could go as far as become a proselyte, but they really couldn't enter into a full um, uh, identity with Israel. But now, now in Christ, God brings them together as one new man. Both Jew and Gentile come together to make up that one new body. That was a mystery in the Old Testament. It was revealed in the New Testament. And we went through that in length. Remember that? And if you're interested in that, if you weren't here last week or two weeks ago, you can get the tape and we can go through that with you. But the question that they're asking here back into Acts chapter 1, go back there, and I'm going through all of this and reviewing all of this because it was confusing to some folks. It may still be confusing in the way I'm describing it. And if you, if you are confused, there's any confusion about any of this, please talk to me later. You can text me, you can email me, you can stop me, and I'd love nothing more than to help you understand this, this aspect of the kingdom program of God because we're approaching that final phase in the kingdom. Most people are completely unaware. Prophesied. Here. In verse 6 again of Acts 1, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So what kingdom are they talking about? They're not talking about the mystery kingdom. They're not talking about the universal, spiritual, theocratic kingdom. What kingdom are they referring to? 
the millennial messianic kingdom. Now, we know that Jesus Christ is literally, literally going to come down to planet Earth, and he's going to reign in Jerusalem for a thousand years. Where do you read that? Revelation. Revelation 26 times it says a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years. Do you think he meant a thousand years? Hmm. It's amazing how so many foolish people try to debate and say that he meant something other than a thousand years. But it's a literal thousand years. The Jews understood that, and we understand that today. The rejection of Jesus would first occurred uh, so that the salvation of the Gentiles would be brought about, and we would begin the church age. And he's answering the question, and he says to them in verse 7, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Hmm. So we're not supposed to know the times or the seasons? You're not sure, or you don't have an opinion. That was then, but this is now. That was then, this is now. Did they need to know the times or the seasons? Would it be imperative to them to know? No, no not at all. Why? Doesn't affect them. Who should know? To what group of people is it imperative that they know the times and the season? We. And especially, especially now. Now, 2,000 years is nothing compared to world history, and 2,000 years is nothing compared to eternity, is it? So this 2,000 years from God's perspective has been two days, two days. It's very important that you and I understand the times and the seasons. And who is the most enlightened man in all of the New Testament? who would write 14 books, I believe 14 books of the New Testament. Paul, who gives us an understanding that we should know the times and the seasons. And where would he do that? That's right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So turn with me there. God doesn't want you to be ignorant of these things, beloved. He wants you to be aware. It wasn't for them. It was just like when God had told Daniel at the end of the book of Daniel, Daniel had this, this, this divine headache because he didn't understand all of these visions, these dreams, the prophecies that he was given. And the angel told him, it's not for you to worry about, Daniel. It's for the time of the end when many will go to and fro, where information will grow exponentially. Forever learning, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. He said, but you go your way, you rest with your fathers, and it'll all be revealed at the time of the end. And it's amazing how much of the scriptures we can completely and clearly understand and interpret today as opposed to then. Daniel didn't understand what he wrote. Ezekiel didn't understand what he wrote. But isn't it amazing how we today can interpret well over 95% of the scriptures very accurately? And how many technical interpretations of every biblical text are there? Please don't forget that. For every single biblical text, there's only one technical interpretation, and you have to seek to find that interpretation first, and, and then you can apply it any other way you might, how the Spirit may lead you. But there is a technical understanding, and today, more than ever before, we, we can derive and conclude what that understanding is. But it's amazing how many avoid the Old Testament and completely avoid biblical prophecy today to their own detriment. But Paul writes here in Thessalonians. Look what he writes. Chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians, verse 1. Is everybody there? But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write you, for you yourselves know perfectly well the day of the Lord shall come to the thief in the night. Now, now he's assuming that they know. How much time did Paul spend there in Thessalonica? About three weeks. But in three weeks, he took them so deep in the Word of God and so deep into eschatology and to end times and what the understanding of biblical prophecy. He says, I, I, there's no need for me to write you. You know, we're there. You know, we're at that time. Now, if they were there then, where are we today? Woo! I'm excited. Aren't you? I'm getting ready to jump off this. I've been practicing, you know. For you yourselves know perfectly well that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. A thief in the night for whom? No, not the church. Somebody said the church. No, listen to me. Whoever that was, no, no. He's not coming as a thief in the night for you, for the unbelieving world, or for the sleeping, sleeping believer with no understanding of these things, no hunger for the word of God. 
No searching out these truths and what God is doing, but not for the believer. He's coming as a thief in the night for those who are completely unaware of the season, the times in which we live. But what does he say? No, as a thief in the night, but for they shall say peace and safety. Who's going to say peace and safety? Predominantly. The Jews, Israel, Israel. Aren't they celebrating what, what happened in the last administration to bring peace to that aspect of the world, at least in, to some degree? The Abrahamic Accord, right? That was brought about where Israel is at peace now with the Arab nations surrounding them, those moderate Arab nations. And, and they're declaring that they're going to go further now with the new administration, with Benjamin Netanyahu as the prime minister once again. They believe they're going to enter into a peace agreement with who? Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia. Wow, won't that be fascinating? And there's coming a day where they're going to declare peace and safety. Now, ah, then sudden destruction shall come upon them. What is that sudden destruction? The tribulation period. That's right. The tribulation is that sudden destruction. What happens, be, what conflict occurs before the tribulation period? Gog Magog, invasion of Israel. It's described for us in Ezekiel 37, 38, 39, right? You go through those chapters and you see that's a very different battle, very different group of people who are coming against Israel in the last days, but it's not Armageddon. No, no, not at all. And what happens at the end of this battle? The enemies of God get wiped, the enemies of God's people, Israel. Five-sixths of the invading force, which is comprised of the Russians, Iranians, the Turks, and a couple of other nations, but those are the three principal players, Russia, Iran, and Turkey. Now, if God intervenes in five-sixths of, of that invading force and their, their military power is completely neutralized, Israel will cry out, peace and safety. Who's the number one enemy of Israel today? Iran. Iran. They need to do something about the Iranian problem. You know, mysteriously, things are blowing up in Syria and Iran. Everybody's wondering who's doing it. You know who's doing it, right? <laughs> But there is a coming conflict that's going to end with Israel being victorious and Israel recognizing it was the God of Israel who helped them, aided them, intervened, and all the world will know that there is a God over Israel and Israel declare peace and... And then what happens? Now, now in the ashes of this conflict, the phoenix that rises from all of that, you know, because the phoenix never died, who's that? The Antichrist. And he begins his reign. And that's when this time of trouble occurs to Israel like never before. So we're seeing the formation of the Gog-Magog conflict. <clears throat> now, I, I don't know if we'll be here when that conflict begins. Uh, I don't know if we're going to leave shortly before it begins, shortly after it starts. Uh, but I know that that's one of the signs I'm looking for, for the fact that Jesus' return is very, very near. When they cry out peace and safety, they can't cry out peace and safety until after the Gog-Magog invasion of Israel. When God has destroyed their enemies that are current enemies of Israel, temporarily. But then who becomes the true enemy of Israel and all of God's people? The Antichrist. The Antichrist. But look what it says here. Yes, they will say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pangs upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, you, brethren, are not in the darkness, so that they should overtake you as a thief. You see that? We're to be children of the light and children of the day. We should be illuminated. And how does that illumination occur? Through all of the false prophets that we have today? Everybody has a dream. Everybody has a... Isn't it amazing how many people claim to be experiencing Jesus today? And then you listen to what the, the hmm, puppycock, right? Nonsense. You want to understand God? You want to hear God speak to you? Read the word of God. You want God to speak to you audibly? Read it out loud, right? <laughs> but it's nonsense today. The, 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 the plurality, the plethora of false prophets and prophetesses today claiming they have seen God or God speaks to them directly. Amazing. No, you, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. You are sons of the light, sons of the day, and we are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep. Don't become lethargic, lazy. Don't neglect the word of God. Listen, we need to become vigilant. What do we need to do? 
contend. Contend means you're vigilant. Vigilant in your, in your parenting and raising your children, right? Because the, the world wants to swallow them up. Why is there such an attack upon our children? That's the next generation. That's where God wants to work. The greatest blessing that God gives the people are children. And we have such disregard for them today. The society acts like we hate. If you took a step back and you see the way children are treated in our society today, the only conclusion you could come to is they hate them. No, they're being duped. They're being deceived. Who really hates the children of the next generation? Satan does. Why? Because God wants to use them. We're supposed to be producing godly offspring to continue the belief and the faith in God and what God has done. No, children are more under attack than ever before. Mm. But we, we should be the ones enlightening, enlightening ourselves through the word of God, enlightening our children, enlightening everyone we have influence over through the illumination of the word of God, and particularly the Old and the New Testament. All that God has said, the full counsel of God. Largest church in Georgia, what, what is it? North Point. Who, who pastors North Point? Andy Stanley. He's a heretic. Andy Stanley, from everything he's been saying recently, the only conclusion you can draw is that he hates the word of God. It's unbelievable that Charles Stanley, such a godly man, would produce such an ungodly... Well, parents should do everything you can to set the right example. You do everything you can to teach your children, but, but you're not responsible for the outcome, are you? No, you're responsible for your conduct. You're responsible for what you teach them. You're responsible for the example you set. Cain and Abel, same mom and dad, same granddad. And look what happened. One is a worshiper and a lover of God. The other one, a murderer, a murderer. But beloved, you're responsible to know the word of God, sons of the light and sons of the day, not of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep or slumber, those do, but watch and be sober, be awake. We're warned in the, in the apocalyptic literature of Luke 21, where he's talking about the end times. Jesus himself says, and he's not speaking to the disciples because they wouldn't experience this time frame. We would. He says, watch ye therefore, and beg that you would be found worthy to escape these things that are coming upon the whole world. Luke 21, around verse 34, 35, 36. Watch, sleep with one eye open. Beg God, beseech God that you would be found worthy to escape. Are you enlightened in these things? Do you know about these things? Are you praying that God would find you worthy? And how is it that I would be worthy? What, what would be required? What's the test for me to be worthy to be found acceptable when he comes? How much work do I have to do? How much do I have to believe? Listen, it's not a matter of what's in your head. It's a matter of what's in your it's a matter who you love. Do you love husband or wife more than you love me? Do you love son or daughter more than you love me? Do you love this world and the things it offers you more than you love me, the pleasures, the materialism? What do you love more than you love me, Jesus said? If there's anything, anything before me in your heart, you're not worthy to be my disciple. You're not ready. Now, now listen to me. That, that's, that's the test. Who is first and foremost in your heart? Truly. And if it's Jesus, you're ready. And if it's something else, you need to pray. You need to get on your knees before this day ends. Before you go to sleep tonight, get on your knees and ask God to change your heart. Help me, Lord, to see you in all of your majesty, in all of your glory, in all of your worth, that you are the darling of heaven and become the darling of my heart. That's what's required. That's all. That's all. It's simple. Love the Lord your God with all your, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Listen, that's what we see in the book of Acts. That's what we see these disciples doing, loving God with everything within them. That's what we're called to do, beloved. But I, 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 don't, think, I, I don't see that exemplified for me much. Do you? And I'm not, I'm not trying to step on your toes. I'm not. I'm not trying to convict anybody. I'm speaking to myself as much as I'm speaking to you right now. I want to show a greater dedication 
because that's a desperate demonstration of my love for him, is to be dedicated to him. Love is not emotion. Love is devotion. Devotion. It's living a devotional life, not just reading devotions, like so many do today, and then live like the rest of the world. No, 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 no. Can't do that anymore. No, 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 no. We're in that time, the season and the time of his return. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and of love as a helmet and the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to appoint salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort one another, edify one another, just as you are doing. So we're to know the times and the seasons. He goes on and he's giving instruction to holy living beginning in verse 12. And Paul says, I urge you, speaking to the Thessalonians, Thessalonians, but he's speaking to you and I this morning. Now listen to me. But I urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem them very highly in love for the work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. How, how, how do you get at peace among yourself? By being in right relationship with God. If you're not disobedient to God in any area, knowingly, in your life, then you're at peace with yourself. When you're in disobedience and you know it, there is no peace. You're not settled at all. You're disturbed. You can be angry, right? But be at peace within yourselves, meaning you're at peace with God, that you're, you're obeying the will of God as much as you know. You're doing the same. And life doesn't get any better than that. Because it's an inward joy. It's not a temporal happiness. Happiness is dependent upon your outward circumstances, but joy is dependent upon a healthy relationship between God and myself and those that I love. But it begins here. The horizontal never, never exceed what the vertical is. You understand that? But the vertical determine the horizontal. Be at peace among yourselves, brethren. Hmm. I don't see that displayed much anymore either. Verse 14, now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, insubordinate, rebellious, contentious. Comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one re-renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourself and for all. You want the highest and best for everyone else, right? We should. Hmm? But we're the people who love success. We just hate successful people. <laughs> That's terrible, terrible. Rejoice with those who rejoice, right? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies. Now, what Paul is saying is here is, is don't have contempt for what God has determined will take place in the future. And there are many today who have contempt. We were in Ezekiel last Wednesday night, in Ezekiel 18, and what was the problem there? What was that saying that Israel was saying over and over again that God said no more? God had prophesied a judgment that would come upon Israel, and they said, ah, that's not going to come. And, we, and I quoted from 2 Peter, where in today, scoffers will come saying what? Where is the promise of his coming? They have contempt for prophecy, for since the creation of the world had begun, everybody's been saying, come on, he's coming. Right, Gail? We just don't know when. <laughs> but we know the season, and we know the time, don't we? Now, we're going to be held accountable for such. And that's what I'm trying to bring about here. This morning, I want to just drive home the point that we're in that last aspect of the kingdom program of God, that mystery kingdom exists now, the church age, right? The body of Christ. And, and it's the gospel is being preached, a true gospel, a false gospel, true Christians, false Christians. What's the one word that describes the mystery kingdom more than any other? Christian. 
Okay, let me, let me repeat that for you. The mystery kingdom is going to be, and we went through the kingdom parables in Matthew chapter 13. If you weren't here, go through that on your own. You can listen to the tape. But I gave you the interpretation, understanding of those kingdom parables. That as the sower went out to sow, there was the true gospel, but then it was stolen away. And then there was a false gospel among the true gospel, false Christians among, among true Christians, and, and then you had this false growth among real growth in the body of Christ. But all of that would exist during this mystery kingdom or during this age we call Christian dumb. dumb. Now, there is a difference, and you need to make a distinction between Christian dumb and the body of Christ, the body of Christ, because that's, that's part of the true spiritual kingdom, okay? So that's what I want you to understand, that we are approaching the end of that mystery kingdom period, and we'll be beginning very soon, Israel will experience the reign of the Messiah, the messianic millennial kingdom for a thousand years. That's what they were talking about. It wasn't for them to know the signs of the seasons or the times, but it is given to you to know why. You're supposed to be children of the light and not of the dark, of the day and not of the night. And where's the light come from? The word of God. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. Is that not true? No, no. Here's what you have to ask yourself. How much do you know of the word of God? How much are you in the word of God? Not just, listen, if it's only Wednesday night when you're here, and most of you aren't here on Wednesday night, but if it's only Sunday morning as we're going through the text and you appreciate Pastor David's worship and the rest of the team, and you appreciate being in this comfortable building, and you appreciate being with each other, and once in a while you appreciate what I might say, that's not enough. No, 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 it's not nearly enough. How often should you allow the light into your life? Every single day. Because the darkness wants to overwhelm you. Because the darkness is overshadowing everything else, isn't it? And the, listen, the only place you're going to get the light, the true light, is through the Word of God. Back to Acts chapter 1. Verse 7, and he said to them, it is not for you to know the times nor the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. That was then, but this is now. And so now we're required to know the times and the seasons. Just as in Luke chapter 19, I think it is, when Jesus made his triumphal entry, held Israel accountable for not knowing the time of his visitation. Because he had prophesied it through the prophet Daniel to the very day. And because of the neglect of prophecy and understanding of Israelology today, there are many who have no understanding of the time that we are in right now, and they will be held accountable, just as Israel was, you see. But in verse 8, he said, But you, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me. The word is martus, where we get the word martyr. Now, it's not necessarily you're going to be murdered, but they're going to be witnesses. They're all going to share the truth of the gospel. And we're all called to be martyrs, to be witnesses of Christ and the truth of God's word and the gospel, right? And he says to them, they're going to receive power due to us. It'll be the Holy Spirit that works through us to be able to be that witness. You can't do it on your own. You can fake it for a little while. But it'll just be for a little while. Give anything enough time and the truth will be revealed. Any situation, any individual. No, you'll receive power from the Holy Spirit. Due to his power, dynamite power, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be my witnesses to me in Jerusalem. This is the outline of the book. First, it begins in Jerusalem. The works of the apostles and the witness of the apostles fulfilling the great commission there in Jerusalem. That's chapters 1 through 7. Jerusalem. 1 through 7. And in Judea and Samaria, that's chapters 8 through 12. As we get into chapters 8 through 12, we're going to see they fulfilled the Great Commission in being his witnesses in Judea and Samaria. And then lastly, to the ends of the earth. Now that's chapters 13 through 28. The Apostle Paul, the, Gen the Apostle to the Gentiles going out. And aren't we glad for that? Yeah. Exciting, isn't it? Now, verse 9. When he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and received in a cloud, received him out of their sight. 
When he was born, he was wrapped in swaddling cloths. But he ascended wrapped in a cloud. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Now, do you believe that? Hmm? You believe he's coming again in the clouds? You do believe that? Literally? You think, you know, literally Jesus Christ is coming to planet Earth? What kind of clouds are they? Storm clouds. Storm clouds. It's not going to be this beautiful day where you see these big, white, puffy clouds that look like huge cotton balls. Mm -mm. Amos chapter 5. Turn me there. It's in there. Keep looking. You'll find it. <laughs> what does Amos mean? Burden bearer. Burden bearer. That's right, my dear. Yeah. Yeah, I had a dog. I named him Amos. He would bear my burdens. I could tell him anything, and he would tell no one. Yeah. He... Yeah, he was, a, he was a great comfort and a companion for me in a very difficult time. The burden bearer. Amos was in Israel and should be. But in chapter 5, it's a woe that Amos is giving to Israel. And, and the woe is because of their hypocrisy. You see, uh, their participation at the temple, their, their observances of all of the Jewish festivals, feasts, and sacrifices, that continued. But the problem was they had all of these right outward expressions of worship, but the problem was in their heart. They didn't really have a heart for God. It was all hypocrisy. I, don't, I guess I don't need to go any further with that one. Verse 18 of chapter 5. Is that where you are? Chapter 5, verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? Now listen, there's a lot of people who chase Bible prophecy and are looking for the day of the Lord, but their lives just don't seem to be lined up with the will of God. Now that was Israel of old. That's what, this is what he's talking about here. This is Israel of old. They want the day of the Lord. They want the messianic kingdom. When will the kingdom come, Lord? And he's saying, what good is the day of the Lord to you, you hypocrite? Now, would that be true today? You know, one of the, one of the uh, when I first got saved, one of the individuals I was following who had a prophetic ministry and seemed to have a good grasp on the understanding of Bible prophecy, but yet when I looked into their life individually, it was wretched. I think I've been married and divorced something like eight or nine times. How could that be? Here, not here. It was here, not here. It's most important that you have it where? Uh, uh, an ounce of heart knowledge is worth what? A, ten of, a ton of head knowledge. Do you understand that? What's in your heart is what's most valuable. Is it in your heart? Now, we can, we can quote all the statistics that kind of point out that there's something wrong. Only 61 of pastors today in the pulpit recognize the truth of the light with regard to Bible prophecy. That means almost 40% of them don't believe the Bible. And that's the pastors in the pulpit. What's going on in the pews? Pew. Pew. Right? Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. And it is a very dark day. Ominous storm clouds. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or as though he went into the house, leaned against the wall. <laughs> I escaped and a serpent bit him. 
Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not dark with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feast days. I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings, grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fat and peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. Worship, so much of the worship today is so profane, isn't it? And they call it worship? There's nothing worshipful about it. It's demonic. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments, but let justice run down like water, righteousness like a mighty stream. Did you offer me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness 40 years, O house of Israel? Hmm. And it goes on and on and on to declare he, he was sick of their hypocrisy. Now, my encouragement to you, I love you. I'm your pastor. I want the highest and best for you. If you're coming here on a weekly basis, my encouragement to you is allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you, to examine your life and see where there's any hypocrisy, where you're presenting yourself outwardly as something you're not inwardly. That's what they were doing. That's what's happening so much today. And so the question I ask you is, who are you really? Who am I, Lord? Show me. Show me, Lord, where there's any disconnect between what I say I believe and who I really am, Lord. And help me. Prepare me, Lord, for that day when you come so that I'll have every confidence of knowing, Lord, when you come, you're coming for me. May there be peace among you. This kingdom of God program is coming to an end. We're about the end of the church age. The times of the Gentiles will be complete. And the messianic millennial kingdom will begin for Israel. But that means he's coming for the true believer in heart very, very soon. And I don't want any one of you to be left behind. Don't we want to go together? Wouldn't that be wonderful if we all go? Maybe so one, Mercedes. Maybe this week. What do you think? We'll pray. Wouldn't it be great? Yeah. 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 I, guess, I guess I want to end on that note. Please examine your heart. Listen, God loves you. He loves you more than you could ever imagine. But he doesn't want any hypocrisy. He wants to know that you love him. And love is not emotion. Love is... And it's not doing a devotion. It's, being, it's living a devotional life. Examine your life. Are you caught up more of the cares of this world? The pleasures that sin has to offer? The materialism of today? Where's your dream home? Is it here? Then you're in trouble. It's got to be there. That's where my dream home is. Amen? Amen? Next week, we'll continue our study in the book of Acts. Shall we stand?